if the world really knew what the Bible said, they would think you're even crazier than they originally thought. If you're being a Christian, if it means saying no to yourself, saying no to your desires, denying yourself, carrying a cross on your back until the day you die, if that's what a Christian means, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, if that's what it means, then why would anyone ever want to be a Christian? Why is there anyone even in this room right now? That's a question we'll consider tonight. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and start in verse 4. We'll read that together. Hebrews 12, 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God's word to us. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer together. Lord, we love you. Lord, we do love your word. Lord, as we ask every single week, as we ask every time we gather, we ask that we would see what your word says, Lord, that we would see what you are teaching us in every passage that we look at. We're asking that you give us the power to understand it. We're asking, Lord, to exalt in you, Lord, to worship you, Lord, to see your glory on the pages of Scripture, to share that with each other, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. We know that we can do that through Jesus Christ, through what he's done for us. We do pray, Lord, that we'd be humbled under your mighty hand tonight and give you the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we started a section we're calling the Marathon of Faith, and that was in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But once you realize that the Christian life is a marathon, once you realize that it's a long-distance race and not just a sprint, once you realize that being a believer is not just a really quick prayer you send up and then you get your ticket to heaven, once you realize the Christian life means endurance, long haul, long term, you realize that the road to holiness is not an easy one. Once that reality hits you, The tendency, especially when times get tough, is to give up. But in verse 3, the author left us with the answer for that question, for soul fatigue. When you get weary down at the deepest level, down deep in your soul, he gave us the answer. And that was to look to Jesus, to consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary, lose heart, give up in your soul. 
That was the first part of the marathon of faith. Now we're moving to the second part of the marathon of faith. Another part of this marathon that we have to reckon with, that we have to deal with, is the discipline of the Lord. And as we're going to see tonight, this is something that is normal for the Christian. This is something that is usual. It's something that's very common. It's something that's absolutely necessary. The section begins with verse 4. If you go and look there, it's encouraging the original readers by putting their situation into the right perspective, giving them perspective on what they're going through. It says, you have not resisted to the point, did not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. It's not over yet for these original readers. There's still hope of finishing well. It's still called today for these readers. Last time they checked, last time we checked, we weren't sawn in half, were we? We're still literally in one piece. We have not endured the cross like Jesus did. We have not been executed by Romans. So he's telling them, this is the perspective. It's not over yet. You're striving against sin. This Christian life has not killed you yet. You haven't sealed your testimony with your own blood yet. You're still going. You're still alive. You're still breathing. It's not time to quit yet. So whenever we study a passage of Scripture, what are we always looking for? We say, okay, here's a big passage. We just read a lot of words, didn't we, from verses 4 all the way to 13. Whenever we read a big passage like this or any passage, what are we looking for? We're always looking for the heart of it, right? We want to see where is the heart of this passage? What's the main point that the author is trying to make? What's the big idea? What's everything driving at? Where do you think it is in this passage? Think about this passage. I believe the heart of what the author is saying is right there at the beginning of verse 7 where he says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. And what he's calling us to do here is endurance. It's not just endurance in general, but it's enduring what type of discipline? The Lord's discipline. And I think it's best translated here as a command to endure it. Endure discipline. Endure the Lord's discipline. So we're coming face-to-face with the very essential aspect of our relationship with God and why the Lord's discipline is essential, why we need it, why we need to submit to it. That's the heart of this text, right there in verse 7. But this passage is also going to give us reasons. It's going to tell us why. It's going to give us a perfectly clear rationale for why we should submit to this discipline. And we're going to dive right in and see reason number one, and that is love. Look back at verses 5 through 6. Love. And I want you to notice that the author is driving his point home here with a, an encouragement, a soft pitch. What's he, what's he doing right off the bat here in verses 5 and 6? It's a rebuke. He's calling them out. He's holding them accountable to Scripture. He's holding them accountable to a passage they should have known back from the book of Proverbs, actually. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And here's the exhortation, back from the book of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. They forgot about that. They forgot about what the word of God said. And if you look carefully, these verses reveal a progression. They reveal a process. They reveal a road that we often go down. It looks not too bad at first, but in the end, you end up with a twisted view of what God's discipline actually is. There's a progression here in these verses, in verses 5 through 6. Let's look at the first step of this progression. 
First step is forgetfulness. We simply forget God's Word. Have you ever forgotten God's Word? What do we mean by that? You mean that we forgot the reference, you forgot the chapter, you forgot the verse? What does that mean? It means, in this case, they've heard it, and over time it slipped away from their memory and slipped away from their application. They started to leave the truth behind. Verse 5 says, you have forgotten the exhortation. Whenever you're going through something traumatic, what's one of the easiest things to do? Put this somewhere else, right? And deal with the problem. Very easy, and even worse than that, a traumatic situation is often one of the best justifications in our own minds for putting this away, for putting this aside. And that's what these readers had done. They're going through something very difficult, and at this point they had forgotten an essential exhortation in the Word of God. They say, I'm going through a lot right now. I don't have time for the Word. They also forgot its relevance, and we also forget the Word's relevance. Look what the text says. Who is this text addressed to? This is great. It says, addressed to you. Was the book of Proverbs addressed to the Hebrews? Think about that. It says this passage from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs, is addressed to you. It's relevant to them. Same thing is for us. The Word of God, all of it is relevant to us. It's for you. It's written for your instruction. The Scriptures equip you. They're profitable for you. They give you life. It's addressed to you, it says. So that you forget the Word of God, then you forget its relevance. You also forget about the relationship that we have with God. It says the text is addressed to you as what? Sons. Showing what type of relationship it is. At this point in the process, they've forgotten an essential element of the believer's relationship with God. They forgot that he is the father and we are the son. We're the daughter. They forgot that the child-father relationship is bound up with discipline, correction. They'd forgotten this. And forgetfulness leads to step two, suspicion. We start entertaining suspicions about God's ways. We start viewing our suffering as an inconsistency with God's character. We start saying, how could these bad things be going on and God still be loving all at the same time? So we start viewing God's ways with suspicion. We start saying, what's happening right now is contradicting God's love. Then we start doubting himself. We begin to wonder if he is totally sovereign. And then for a reason, yes, he is sovereign, but maybe he's not very loving. So we start being suspicious of God himself. This is exactly what we do down deep in our hearts. And suspicion leads to resistance. Resistance. We begin resisting his discipline. And verse 5 shows us two ways that we do that. It shows us two ways that we resist God's discipline. First, there is the thick-skulled, hard-headed approach. Thick-skulled and hard-headed. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Any of you ever have any hard-headed children? Probably not at this church. Probably other churches, though, right? Hard-headed kids? Kids that you discipline them, you correct them, and then 10 minutes later, they are doing exactly the same thing you just punished them for, and they've done that for three days in a row. Hard-headed. They think little of your discipline. Apparently, they didn't even know the discipline even happened. The discipline has no effect. It's like nothing happened at all. Reminds me of Pharaoh with the ten plagues. See, that comes to my mind when I think of these kind of things. 
God would send a plague, Pharaoh would say, I've sinned. Oh no, I've done it. I'm wrong. And the plague would stop, and then what would Pharaoh do? Harden his heart, say, I'm not, I'm not changing my plans. I'm going to keep Israel right here. Nothing's going to happen. It's like nothing happened at all. Hard-necked, hard-headed, thick-skulled. You say, well, I would never do that. I would never do that to the Lord. I'm more of the one who is more passive. Well, there's an approach for that, too. That's also resistance. Look where it says the next thing. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. So there's a thick-skulled approach. And there's a thin-skinned approach, too. This would be the child who gets... Whenever he gets disciplined, he melts and then wonders if you ever loved him ever in the first place. I thought you were my father. I thought you were my mother. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. And then you're disciplining me. Melting. You're fainting when you're being reproved. With our relationship with God, this is where you try to escape quietly, passively. Escape from God's discipline. doesn't require any words. So that resistance then leads to redefinition. This is the progression that our heart does almost every time. Redefinition. We've gone through the first three, and then we settle on a new definition of God's discipline. We say this. Here's our definition at this point. We say God's discipline equals what? God's anger. We come up with a new definition of what discipline truly is. But look back at verse 6. The main goal of this passage, as I said at the beginning, the heart of this passage is to convince you of the need to endure, to spur you on to endure, to show you how important it is to convince you to endure the Lord's discipline. But this, at verse 6, is where we break out of this progression, these four steps that we've just seen, where we break out of that, and the truth of God's word sets you free, sets you free to obey, to endure. Who does God discipline? The answer is really clear in verse 6. It says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Very simple, isn't it? Very clear. And he scourges every son whom he receives. So don't get caught up in that progression where you neglect the word of God, where you start viewing God's way with suspicion, and you try to resist, and you redefine what he's doing. It says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now at this point, we need to make a really important distinction. God's discipline of his children is not legal punishment. It's his corrective and formative instruction. It's very important. I'll say it one more time. God's discipline of his children is not legal punishment. It's something he does that is formative and corrective. What do we mean by that? I'm not talking about everyone in the world. This passage is not talking about everyone in the world. This passage is not talking about Every single person who's ever lived is talking about God's adopted sons and daughters. It's talking about believers in particular. So this is where we need to make a distinction between this legal punishment and then actual corrective or formative discipline that God does for us. If you are a child of God, has your sin been dealt with? It's been fully dealt with. Is that why the gospel is called good news? All of your sin has been paid for. All the sin that you've already done. The sin that you've done today, the sin you're going to do tomorrow, it's all dealt with on the cross. It's paid for. Hebrews 10 says, for by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us how many of our transgressions? 
all. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's dealt with. It's done. Psalm 103 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. How far has he removed our transgressions from us? As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Infinite. You'll never be able to travel that far. That's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. And now notice in verse 13, this father-child comparison. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you're a child of God, your sin is dealt with. The legal punishment for your sin is taken care of. So because he loves us, because he's already dealt with our sins, because we're justified by faith, everything else he does is to shape us, correct us, form us into the people he wants us to be, correct us when we, when we stray off the track. So we need to get rid of karma. We need to get rid of superstition. This is where it counts. Get rid of all those ideas out of our mind where we think there's this one-to-one correspondence. Oh, no, I did something. i got to watch my back. Calvin said, The most audacious despiser of God is most easily disturbed, trembling at the sound of a falling leaf. That's what you got from the book of Leviticus. Say, what was that? Did you hear that noise? I'm jinxed. God's after me. That's superstition, isn't it? That's, That's some false view of karma. You know what that is? It's a guilty conscience. That's all that is. It's a guilty conscience that has not been taken to Christ. People who don't take their guilty consciences to Christ have a way of creating their own punishment. They create their own torture. So it's not a one-to-one correspondence between sin and then punishment. You want to know how I know that's true? If you got punished, if God punished you every single time you sinned, if he gave you what you deserve for every single time you sinned, This room would be empty. There would be no one standing up here either. Entirely empty. So get rid of those superstitious ideas. God does what he does to us to form us, to correct us into the people he wants us to be. So the truth about God's discipline will create a desire to endure it. If we have false views of God's discipline, if we think discipline means anger, we're going to want to run away from it. But if we know it's a biblical definition that discipline means love, we will endure it. The truth will set us free. God's discipline is a sign of his love. So verses 7 through 8, they just keep building on what we've already seen. Second reason we're going to see to endure God's discipline, what we need his discipline is security. Security. Now think about this general truth. When there's a man who has a son, that man is going to care about the future of his son, right? General truth, right? There's a man who has a son. He's going to care about what happens to that son and his future. He knows that the way to prepare that son for the future is discipline, correction. If he lets that son do whatever he wants, if he lets that son have whatever he wants, if he lets that son say whatever he wants, if he lets that son wear whatever he wants, if he lets him be whatever gender he wants to be, All those things would be setting him up for what? Failure. So he does what? He disciplines that son. When he tries to do something harmful just because he's completely ignorant, 
He says no, and he starts parameters and hedges around him. When he's defiant and disrespectful, the father's not going to spare the rod. If a father sees his two-year-old walking out toward a busy street, is he going to say, well, it's time for him to learn to make his own decisions? No, what's he going to do? He's going to run out there, stop what he's doing, grab him, and he's going to set some kind of hedge around him so it never happens again. Maybe like get on those leashes that you see at the theme parks and hold him in that one spot all the time until he gets to be 12 years old. I don't know. Things like that. But it's a natural impulse that a father has. He cares about his son's health. He cares about his son's safety. He cares about his son's preservation, his growth, his future success. He cares about these things. But this brings us to a very, very brilliant rhetorical question in verse 7. Really, we deal with the same same thing this morning in Matthew chapter 7. Is there a father out there who would not do these kind of things? Unfortunately, there is. Listen to this question in verse 7. It says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Let Let the question sink in for a second. What father out there would not discipline his son? What son do you see out there who doesn't get discipline? You say, actually, I can think of too many examples. I can think of too many examples. Sin-cursed world. We can imagine such a person. We all know such people. It's what we see all the time. And what is it? What kind of son is this? What does the text say? It's an illegitimate son. So verse 8 is about, it says, But if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's rough. Now he's bringing it back from an earthly analogy of a father-son relationship. Now he's talking about our spiritual relationship with God. All of God's children get discipline. All of God's children, of which all have become partakers. If you're a child of God, you're going to get discipline. If you don't, This verse is very clear that you are not a child of God. If you are not being disciplined by our Heavenly Father, that means you are not His son. You are not His daughter. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, There cannot be a greater evidence of God's hatred and wrath than His refusing to correct men for their sinful courses and vanities. Earlier we said that our hearts redefine God's discipline as God's anger, right? But what is the lack of God's discipline? That's his anger. Thomas Brooks also said, where God refuses to correct, there God refuses to, resolves to, destroy. Where God decides not to correct, he's deciding to destroy. Romans 1, same kind of thing. It should send a chill up your spine. God Three words. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. A couple of verses later. God gave them over, which is four words, to degrading passions. He who withholds his rod hates his son. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Security. Think about the security that you have. Your conscience bugs you whenever you get angry with someone. What's that? Security. 
God shows you your weakness in some strategic way after you've been prideful all day long. You've been thinking about yourself, looking at yourself in the mirror, thinking about how great you are, and you realize some kind of weakness, just the right time. What's that? Security. You've had a deep pain in your soul after having lustful thoughts. What's that? Security. Someone in the church comes up to you like Nathan the prophet after you've done some sin that you're not willing to repent of, and he says, you are the man. What's that? Security. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, the psalmist said. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. This is security. We try to run from this security, don't we? When we run from God's discipline, we are running from security. So endure God's discipline because this is something that shows you how secure you are in his hand. His discipline means he owns you. It means you belong to him. It means there's no safety outside of his discipline. God's discipline is our security. Two great reasons. We could stop right here, couldn't we? But he keeps going, giving us more reasons to endure. Shows us number three, development. Development in verses 9 through 11. The Lord's discipline produces the results that he wants, produces the results that he desires. Now, if I want you to notice something in these verses, there are three parallel statements, one for each uh, verse. Each one shows our earthly perspective on discipline and then contrasts it with the heavenly perspective. Let's look at the first one in verse 9. It says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Have you ever met someone who was never disciplined as a child? Maybe who's an adult now, never disciplined? Is that person usually known as one of the most respectful people in the workplace? Actually, if you find the most disrespectful person in the workplace, you found the person who was not disciplined as a child. You already know. You don't need to ask him. A dad might not be perfect, a dad, in this case, is just general truth right here, might not even be a believer. But if there's basic discipline in the home, very basic discipline, it usually produces at least in that kid some sort of respect. That's the point that's being made here. It's a general principle. They say if mommy or daddy says something, that they mean it. It produces a respect. But what's the heavenly perspective in this verse? God's discipline produces something more than respect. What does God's discipline produce? says, if we are subject to the Father of spirits, our great Heavenly Father, if we submit to Him, what's the result? Live. Life. Much more than respect, we get life. That's what He produces with His discipline is true life. There's a second statement in verse 10. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. Again, generally speaking, general truths that we know about. Parents will have kids in their homes for how long? 18, 20, 22 years, 40 years, I don't know. What's their discipline based on? What is an average parent, what is his discipline based on? What seems best to them, right? His values that he grew up with, her values that she grew up with, and she bases the way she disciplines her children based on those kind of things, what seems best, right? And we know, as we've seen, that could be something good, that could be something bad, right, in this world. That's the standard. But how is God's discipline different in this verse? It says, he disciplines us for, number one, it says, for our good. Is there anything that God does for his children that's not good? Think about that. Is there anything God does for us 
for his true children. That's not something good. Everything that God does for true believers is ultimately good. It says in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good. Who? To who? To those who love him. He's working all things for our good. Discipline is for our good as his sons. But what's the result? What does this produce? What does it say in the text? We may share his, you can say it out loud, holiness. That's what it produces. You have life, you have holiness. Now look at verse 11. There's one more that's a little bit more difficult to accept. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Who would say amen? Grieving, distressing, agonizing, slow, feels like it's not even worth it, painful. That's how it seems, is what the text says. It doesn't say that it is, it says it seems that way. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, after you spent time in the spiritual gym, week in, week out, afterwards, if you've been trained by this kind of discipline, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's where we get righteousness in our lives. Practical righteousness. You have life, holiness, righteousness. This is what God is doing us when he's disciplining us. So when we take this home, we know that there's no holiness without hardship. No sanctification without suffering. Ryan, I do confess there was one hymn that I could have told you, but I didn't think about it until too late. John Newton, he's the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn that we've sung at this church before. He understood this concept, and you, you know these words. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. We, read about, we heard about that today. We, after this morning's sermon in Matthew 7, we want to pray more, right? We want to more earnestly seek God's face. We want to grow. We, we desire these things as we read God's word. But when we ask those things... We often don't even know what we are asking for. That's why John Newton's song isn't over. Next verses he said, Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Ouch. So that's not what I asked for. I asked to grow. I asked for more faith. I asked for holiness and sanctification and righteousness in life. Those are the things I asked for. I did not ask for the angry powers of hell to assault my soul in every part. I didn't ask for that. Or did you? John Newton didn't make this up. He got it from Scripture. The psalmist had the same desire. The psalmist had the same request back in Psalm 119. He says, this is his prayer, Teach me good discernment. Teach me, Lord, these things. Teach me knowledge. For I believe in your commandments. The psalmist knew this required a certain process couldn't skirt around this process that God uses. Very next verse. It says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. This is the process that God uses. Again, if you were to read on in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, You are good and do good. Here's the prayer again. Teach me your statutes. Then verse 71, a few verses later, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. Thomas Brooks, you've got to start reading Thomas Brooks, by the way. I know Jeffrey will start will this week. 
He says this. He says, the bee sucks sweet honey out of the bitterest herbs. So God will, by afflictions, teach his children to suck sweet knowledge, sweet obedience, sweet experiences, and sweet humility out of all the bitter afflictions and trials he exercises them with. Amen. Think about this. Why is this God's method? Why does God do it this way? Is he cruel after all? And he likes to see us sweat. He likes to see us suffer. Is that why? Why is this God's method? If you truly believe in your responsibility for your sin, if you truly believe that we have to own our sin, we have to admit that we're sinners. We have to see at this point that he's disciplining us this way because we desire to go astray. We desire all the time the wrong things. So he's constantly correcting us. He's constantly putting us back on the right path. There's a vine that we have growing over our carport right now, and we used trellises to support them so they could grow the right direction. But this particular vine, it, every single week, right now it's actually been two weeks since I cut it, so it's all over the place, but it wants to grow all the time all the wrong directions. It grows way up too high, or it tries to reach onto the house, it tries to reach over to the cars, it tries to reach out to the grass, all the wrong directions. So constantly we have to keep trimming it, making it go the right direction. Same thing with us. This is what God's working with us. He's being patient with us. We're sinners. And he's constantly correcting us, putting us back on the path and making us into the people he wants us to be. So the way to endure is to remember that there is no path to sanctification apart from his discipline. And we have to trust that what he's doing is the right thing. William Cooper, he was an old hymn writer. We're going to um, learn this hymn very soon, hopefully in this church. But I want to read you the words to an old hymn that he wrote. He said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. You know, don't jump to conclusions about what God is doing, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I love that line. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. With him, God moves in a mysterious way. That's reason number three. He's developing you into the person he wants you to be. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. But Jesus tells us in John 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, what does he do? He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. This is God's process. It means he's working in you to bear fruit. And finally, reason number four, sustainability, verses 12 through 13. Look down at those verses. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the, lame, the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Uh, everyone remember when Tim Tebow played for the Gators? Remember that? You know, we'd always have the black uh, lines under his eyes for the sun, and he always write Bible references on them. Do you remember that? Well, there was one time when he had the reference Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. My dad, this is, he was telling me he was watching one of the games, and the sports commentators started talking about those references. They said, hey, what does he have on his, uh, what does he have on his eyes today? Oh, Hebrews 12, 12, they said. Let's look it up. And they actually, this is during the game, and they read it. They said, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. So that makes sense. Tim Tebow has a knee injury right now. That makes perfect sense. Later on, they, they apologized. They said, oh, actually, we were wrong. It's actually Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. We got that wrong. I don't think they read that last reference, though. 
So don't get that Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 is for Christians, and then Hebrews 12, 12 is somehow for athletes. Okay? Don't come to that conclusion. The author is concluding this section of this marathon of faith by adding more information to his analogy of the marathon. He's adding more information to this illustration that he's been building up to this point. How many needs does a runner have? Two. That's all he's got. That's all she's got. Will a runner ever be able to grow a third knee if he ever needs it? No. A runner has to do what then? You have to take care of those knees. Joints are fragile things. They'll run out. They'll wear out. No third knee option. Take care of your ankles. Take care of your hips. He can't just blow out all those joints in one training session or just one short race or one day of fun or whatever. He has to take care of those joints. He has to have a long-term strategy for taking care of those precious things that God has given him, his health and those joints. And here's the strategy. Look at the strategy in these verses. Two things. Strengthen. Straighten. Straighten. Strengthen. That's it. That's the strategy. Very simple. Today, if you're an athlete, you could use a knee brace to help that knee joint stay in place whenever you're running. Keep it the right direction. And you could do special exercises to strengthen the weak areas so that you can last longer and race for a longer time into your life. But the point is, the spiritual analogy that the author is giving us here is that he is offering us strength and encouragement to keep on going over the long haul. Because how long is this discipline going to last? Just until you get very spiritual, right? And then it stops. Whenever you finish seminary, then it stops. Or maybe after you've been a pastor for 10 years, then you don't have to be disciplined anymore. How long does it last? How long are we going to have to live in this evil world? How long are we going to have to suffer? We're in it for the long haul. We're in it for the long term. And this brings us full circle all the way back to the beginning of the section in chapter 12. And what's the answer for this? What's the answer for endurance to keep on running, to keep on going? What's the answer? He gives a very clear answer in 12, 1 to 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He made it to the finish line. He's waiting for us. He started the race. He finished it. And all we have to do is keep going, fixing your eyes on him, and we'll make it there. That kind of looking, that kind of perspective is what creates the endurance. And Lord's discipline, keeping us on track. His discipline is proof that he loves us. It's security that he owns us. It's the normal way that he grows us and produces what he wants to produce And it's how we're going to make it over the long haul, the Lord's discipline. And we have every reason to submit to his course of discipline. I'd like to finish up with a tough question that we're going to have to face even this week as we're going to see how, as we try to see how this applies to our lives. That's this question. How do you know if you're being disciplined by the Lord? Have you ever asked that question before? How do you know? We know that that God does discipline us. We know that he has disciplined us before, but if you want to do something right now, how do you know if it's the Lord's discipline? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves this week. I don't really turn the question back around on you. Think about this. This is a sin-cursed world. Bad things happen every single day. Bad things happen to you every single day. This is the world we live in. So let's take a scenario from the New Testament. Think about the imprisonments of Paul for a minute. Put yourself now in the counselor's chair. Paul would never do this, but pretend Paul's coming to you for counsel, Okay. 
and you're going to give him advice on what is going on. He says, why am I going through these imprisonments? Is the Lord disciplining me or something? Think about this. Put yourself in that chair. What would you tell him? I know the kind of answers that he would get from us. One person might say, Paul, you used to persecute the church. Why are you so surprised that bad things are happening to you? You might go to the next counselor, and that person might say, God's trying to teach you contentment. He's trying to teach you that he is all you need. You might go to another counselor. Before you judge any of these counselors, keep thinking. The next person might say, you know what, Paul? God's doing this so that the whole Praetorian Guard and government officials who would never otherwise hear the gospel, he's using your imprisonment so that they can hear about the work of Christ. Or the next counselor might say, God's using these circumstances to make a slave, Onesimus, a believer. Or God's using this circumstance to, for you to help teach Philemon about forgiveness. Or God wants to show you his power and your weakness. Or would we tell him kind of answers like this? Would we give him answers like this? That's what we'd say, isn't it? So which one is true? Hmm. Hmm. It's not quite that simple, is it? Not quite that simple. So here's a few, very few, and that's where you start thinking more this week about the same question, because all of our circumstances are going to be unique, different. God's working all kinds of different situations. But here's a few important things to remember. By the way, all that counsel we already got from Paul anyway, but from his letters. Think about this, though, a few important things. Number one, when God does something, when God does something, he is doing many things. When God does one thing, he has all kinds of things that he's accomplishing at the same time. If he's an infinite God, and he is, how could we relegate his one action to just one thing that he's accomplishing? Think about that. He, think about the situation with Joseph and his brother selling him into slavery. Think about how that was there to preserve his brothers, to preserve the nation of Israel during the time of famine. But think about how also that's fulfilling a prophecy for them to actually get to Egypt and become slaves there and then to make an exodus from Egypt. All these purposes that God's working through, that one event of Joseph's brother selling him into slavery, doing many, many things through one event. is where we also need to be careful to judge. Because we don't know exactly what God's doing. So there, oh, there's a riot in Indonesia. There's, a, there's a, a mutiny against the government. Oh, it must be because that's an evil governor. And God's judging that person. We don't know that, do we? We don't know what's going on. So when God does something, he is doing many things. Second thing we need to do is look back. Look back to things that have already happened in your lives. If something really bad has happened to you, it's natural for us to not want to think about that, right? To put it out of our minds, to not dwell on it. But one thing we should do is to look back on those things and think through all the things that God taught us through those difficult circumstances. And if you do that, if you really meditate on what was going on and what God was doing and what he has produced, you'll probably end up concluding that you would think, wow, things that I am today, the ways I've seen myself grow, I wouldn't be this way if God had not used those difficult circumstances. Things would be way different. Or you might think, the people around me. Maybe someone became a believer because of my difficult circumstance. Or all kinds of good things could have come from that one particular thing. So look back and think about how God was using a circumstance and how he taught you and how you did see it was the Lord's discipline. 
Third thing we should do whenever we go through something like this where it's difficult, where it's suffering, is we should examine ourselves. We need to be careful with this, but we still should examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Is there any wicked way in me? Is there any hidden evil in my heart? Is there any sin I'm not willing to let go of? We should examine ourselves. And once we've done that, once we've repented, and we've taken those things to the Lord, we should ask, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? We should ask him that question. I also wanted to point something else out in this context, that what is the author doing for these readers? He is telling them that what they are going through is the Lord's discipline. He has labeled it for them. And now he's calling them to examine themselves and to keep on going. Number four thing I think we should consider is we need to be patient and expect fruit. Be patient in the circumstance and then expect something to happen. We should expect God to be working something. Expect him to be producing righteousness, holiness, life in our lives. Patience. We need to be patient with ourselves. We say we want growth and we want it right now, but that's not the way education works, is it? can't get a college degree in one month, can you? That's just the way education goes. It takes long periods of time. We need to be patient with ourselves. We also need to be patient with others. There's people that we are ministering to. There's people who we pray for. There's people who we care about, who we want to see them grow. But there's things like we learned this morning that we just can't do, things that are not within our power, where we have to be patient and pray and ask the Lord to work. Psalmist said, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And finally, as we go through situations like this and try to determine what's discipline, make the truth of God's sovereignty one of your best friends. Make the truth of God's total sovereignty one of your best friends. Tim built a trellis out there for the plants, if you've seen it before, for the VBS kids, so the plants could grow around it. And uh, when those seeds were planted around that trellis, did those seeds know one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to just cover that trellis and go whatever direction that trellis wants me to go, whatever direction the master garden wants me to go. Were the seeds thinking that? No. They're just planted, and right now they don't even know that their trellis is even there. They're just standing up there about a foot tall, and they have no idea there's a trellis that's ever even been built. But who knows? Who does know there's a trellis? Tim, the master gardener, right? He knows that there's a trellis. He knows the future of those plants, doesn't he? He knows what needs to happen to those plants. He knows what to do to make them grow in the right direction. He knows all of those things, and so it is with God. He knows exactly the discipline that we need. He already knows it. He has known it from all eternity. Before we were ever born, before the world was ever created, he had a unique course of discipline prepared for every single one of his children. This is his sovereignty. He knew All of these things. He has already built our trellis. He knows the shape that he wants us to be, and he will do it. Has God ever tried anything? Has God ever said, I'm going to try to do this? Never. He intends it. He's going to do it. He wills it. It's going to happen. The course is planned out. There's no mistakes. There's no retrofits. There's no plan Bs. So we all have to answer this question. Tonight and for our lives, will you submit to God's course of discipline. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do love you. And Lord, after we see how your word defines what your discipline is, we do say that we love your discipline. Lord, we do pray that we would keep that truth in our minds. 
Lord, we pray that as difficult times come, I pray that we would not slip into a worldly thought process where we redefine what your discipline is and where we get angry with you and suspicious of you and start to think that you just don't love us after all. I do pray, Lord, that we would have an accurate view of what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, seek to examine our hearts. Lord, seek to repent of sin that we might be holding on to. And Lord, that we'd submit ourselves to your discipline, Lord, that we can be the people that you've created us to be. We do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.